You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordleone, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. I cannot say I love God, but reject the body that He's given me. Europeans abandon their churches, but Americans secularize their churches. That's what's happening here. Benedict was a theologian. He was very concerned with speaking clearly, precisely. You always know what he means when he speaks and writes. Much of the confusion in the Roman Catholic Church with the Francis papacy has been sown by ambiguity. And when we experience the weakness, the frailty, the sin within our own marriages and family, take heart. The fulfillment of what God intended for marriage is finally found in Christ. New York City subway riders love issues, etc. There is a great move to not only rediscover the family, but to support the natural family afoot in the United States and elsewhere. But how far can that pro-family movement go forward while ignoring that for decades now, men and boys have been undermined in our society. That needs to be corrected as well. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in on this Tuesday afternoon, the 17th of January. Delano Squires joins us to talk about supporting men and families, and Pastor Tom Baker to teach a Sunday school lesson on the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10 and Psalm 23. Delano Squires is a research fellow for the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family, at the Heritage Foundation. He holds a Master's of Public Policy degree from George Washington University, and he's author of a recent column for The Federalist titled Pro-Family Conservatives Must First Be Pro-Men. Delano, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. Why is the idea of supporting men in order to advance the family controversial to some? It shouldn't be, but we live in a country where for the last, let's say, at least one to two generations, the prevailing wisdom is that when you empower women, based on how the left defines empowerment, then you empower the family, the community, and the nation. So this is why liberals tend to celebrate the fact that, for instance, women outnumber men in terms of college acceptance. They celebrate any time they feel like women are making strides in an area that was previously male-dominated. And one of the, the results of that is that American men and boys have slipped further and further back. We're not doing well, oftentimes educationally, socially, and even spiritually. So I think to the extent that conservatives want to take on the mantle of being pro-family, you can't have pro-family policy in a culture that thinks masculinity itself is toxic and problematic. What have progressives done to undermine husbands, fathers, and men in general? How long do we have to talk? I mean, it's, they've, they've done a number of things. Some of them were in terms of public policy. A lot of it is in terms of social norms, cultural trends. But I think the notion that the federal government is ultimately responsible for the provision and protection of women and children is a big sort of shift in terms of our culture. 
conservatives, you know, rightfully push back on the welfare state and the growth of that welfare state over the last 60 years. But again, an- another thing is just the the notion that we would go from fighting sexism to masculinity itself, where just by virtue of being born male, you are seen oftentimes on the left as being quote unquote problematic. That's another huge issue. We can't change our immutable characteristics. And as I said, there are a number of other areas in which, even culturally, the image of the American father went from being sort of strong and sturdy, dependable, working every day, to a boob, a fool, someone who really doesn't lead his family, a punchline. And I think all of these things that may seem small on their own have combined in such a way to undermine the progress of American males. You say that the combination of the U.S. Supreme Court Dobbs decision overturning Roe and growing parental discontent with public education is creating an opportunity for the pro-family movement. How so? Well, I think in a post-Roe America, now is an opportunity for conservatives to have a unique, positive vision for family, for family formation one that situates marriage as the cornerstone of family formation, particularly for for someone like me who is a Christian, is a believer, it gives me an opportunity to talk about marriage in terms of one man and one woman in a covenant union for one lifetime dedicated to one another and the children that they have together. That's something different. It's different than what the left proposes. So I, I think that's one thing as it relates to abortion and If we were able to get marriage rates up, let's say, to what they were in the, I don't know, 1950s, I think what we would see based on the statistics on the women who procure abortions is that that one change, which is simple but certainly not easy, would naturally drive down the abortion rate over subsequent generations. So that's on the Dobbs side. But on the other side, in terms of parental discontent, Conservatives who have largely been pro-choice in terms of charter schools and vouchers for at least the last 20 years have gotten a lot louder about both of those policy issues, particularly as obviously all American children, let's say during 2020 and parts of 2021, were relegated to online learning. Parents were starting to see what their kids were learning in school. They were pushing back against sort of gender ideology and race essentialism. And these types of occurrences gave conservatives an opportunity to say, hey, we respect parents, we respect their authority as it relates to the lives of their children, and we do not believe that either the state nor the the government education system has a right to train up children in a way that is at odds with their parents' values. So I think particularly, again, in the wake of of sort of COVID lockdowns and online school, conservatives have a real opportunity to paint a picture of what a pro-family, pro-school choice, pro-solid education would look like for the American public. Tell us about the Family Security Act and the Provide for Life Act. So the Provide for Life Act is a pro-family plan proposed by Senator Rubio. So he even frames it as a pro-family plan for a post-Roe America. And what he argues for 
is expanding the child tax credit, um, enabling parental leave, expanding support for pro-life crisis pregnancy centers, and even funding mentoring services for low-income mothers. Now, the Family Security Act, which has gone through a couple of iterations, was proposed by Senator Mitt Romney. One of the key provisions would be the provision of a stipend or subsidy, depending on how someone would frame it, of between $250 and $350 a month per child based on age. So both of these are plans that, again, capture the desire of conservatives to address the issues of family. Because for so long, the left has been able to say that they are the pro-family party. But to the left, pro-family just means bigger government and more spending. It almost never takes into account the types of incentives that that spending creates as it relates to the targeted population. So the left sees itself as pro-family if it tells single unmarried mothers that they will give them more money for each child that they have out of wedlock. And then they were surprised when more and more children were being born out of wedlock. So again, these conservative plans, I think, try to get at some of these issues in terms of support for families, support for pregnant women, but still while capturing certain conservative principles, encouraging work, promoting marriage, and so on and so forth. How does so-called women's empowerment make it more difficult to form stable families? <laughs> As is often the case in life, uh, you know, the, the devil's in the details. I think women's empowerment is sort of typified both in terms of financial independence and the sexual revolution. So the second way feminists saw women being empowered to the extent that women can have the same sexual appetites and from their perspective, free from the consequences of sex in the same way that men were. I do not think that that's empowering because that is one of the sort of tenets that led to 50 years, almost 50 years of, of the abortion regime. So if you live in a world in which subsequent generations of women believe that they do not need men because they have their own money and they can abort a child whenever they, they feel like it, that's something that makes it difficult to form stable families. And particularly when doing that, when the people doing that also publicly advocate for policies that are detrimental to men. So I'm thinking back to how it might have been last year when the current administration was putting forth an infrastructure plan. And typically, you know, we think about roads and bridges and, and buildings, building things. And then it's, I was hearing daycare is infrastructure, right? So it was one of these things in which the notion that men would disproportionately benefit from a particular policy is something that people who push women's empowerment, quote-unquote, would generally and vehemently disagree with. How do we persuade conservative politicians to talk about what boys and men need? Part of it is, is to let them know that boys and men are citizens, they matter, that to the extent that men feel disempowered, in their families and in their communities, everyone in the society is going to suffer. And part of that is just no society teaches its women that it is their responsibility to provide for and protect an adult male and the children that they have together. 
so ultimately, regardless of what society and what part of the world and what time period we're talking about, men have been responsible for provision and protection. So I think reminding conservatives of that fact and letting them know that you don't have to dismiss the gains that women have made over the last 60 years, obviously many positive gains, in order to do this, it'll just take a shift in thinking and in rhetoric. So for instance, instead of having a hundred speeches in which all you do is talk about the benefits of going to college, perhaps you have 60 speeches where you talk about that and 40 where the primary focus is on the benefits of vocational and technical education and not as a fallback for kids who could not or did not want to go to college, but as something in and of itself to be aspired to talk about the, not just the dignity of work, sort of a concept that's unattached to anything, but talk about the dignity of building something with your hands and being able to see your handiwork used in a way in which you desired. So I think there are ways to do this that won't be a shock to the system. But I think the biggest thing is just to get conservative politicians and pundits and intellectuals to think about it and think about these issues in a, in a different way than they, than they have before. You write about an iron triangle of statements that must be included in any bill, statute, regulation, or policy that impacts the families. What does that triangle look like? Sure. So what I said is that these three statements are fairly simple and straightforward. One is that children have a right to the love and support of the man and woman who created them. Two is that the ideal family structure for every child includes being raised by his or her married biological parents in a stable and loving home. And that three, men, not the state, are ultimately responsible for the children that they father. Again, these are three things that didn't have to be stated in previous generations because our society was largely organized around these truths. But in an era where, again, the government has played the role of husband and father in far too many homes or far too many communities, it's important to sort of stake out territory, both in terms of public policy and in terms of rhetoric. And one of, one of the reasons why I started with number one in terms of children having a right to love and support of the man and woman who created them is that often in our conversations around family, family policy today, particularly those that surround, let's say, surrogacy and adoption, they tend to focus on the quote-unquote rights of the adult. So if an adult, a single adult male or two men in a relationship or two women for that matter say, well, we want a child, the prevailing wisdom is that they have a right to a child. But I would argue that no person has a right, a right to a child that they cannot produce on their own um, because every right comes with, you know, attaching obligations. So, if, if I, as a, if a single man, have a right to a child and, and I have no wife, then that means that someone else is obligated to either provide me that child, a child that they created, or to provide me, um, for lack of a better term, the reproductive material to create that child. Whereas I'm arguing that children have a right to the love and support of their mother and father, and that places the obligations back on the adults exactly where they belong. So, as I said, I, I think... These three self-evident truths 
should function as the iron triangle of conservative social policy. Delano Squires is our guest. He's research fellow for the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Author of a recent column for The Federalist titled Pro-Family Conservatives Must First Be Pro-Men. When we come back, how does he respond to the criticism that the focus on men will take us back to the rigid sex roles of the mid-20th century? You can meet and hear journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelioni, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, and Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. Making Disciples for Life. Across the nation, students are back in school in over 1,800 schools serving children in early childhood through high school. Students are thriving in programs of excellence in a safe, caring, Christian environment taught by dedicated teachers. To find a school in your community, visit lcms.org schools. Connect today for information about a Lutheran school for the children in your family at lcms.org schools. Contending for truth in an age of anti-truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start. The foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes. Dedicated customer service and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House. Listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House. cph.org. Life Week 2023 with Lutherans for Life is coming soon, and you're personally invited to join in celebrating that you are blessed for life. From Sunday, January 15th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023, go to lutheransforlife.org for more information and for Zoom links. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about supporting men and families with Delano Squires of the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. The premier conference for Christian laity is Friday, June 16th and Saturday, June 17th at Concordia University, Chicago. The speaking lineup for the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference includes LCMS President Matt Harrison, San Francisco Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione, journalists Mark and Molly Hemingway, Pastor Peter Bender of the Concordia Catechetical Academy, Kyle Mann of the Babylon Bee, and Pastor Will Whedon of The Word of the Lord Endures Forever. Early bird registration is $140. That's including three meals. Learn more and register at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385, making the case June 16th and 17th at Concordia University in River Forest, Illinois. Delano, how do you respond to those who say that focusing on men is going to take us back to the rigid sex roles of the mid-20th century? I understand that that's what some people would say. I mean, I, I reject that premise. As I said, I think no one benefits when men, whether it's teenagers or adults, are disaffected, disconnected, 
and downtrodden. So ultimately, the society benefits when, when men feel empowered, when they feel that they're operating you know, in terms of their purpose. And, and again, I would say part of that purpose is, is provision and protection. So I'm not trying to you know, enforce rigid sex roles, but I'm not a person that ignores biology. So the notion that men and women are exactly the same is one that is easily debunked because form follows function or function follows form. So there are things that men can do that women cannot, obviously, in terms of strength and so on. It's not about returning to a day, you know, way in the past, in the 1950s. It's about, and I say this again as a Christian, living in the world as it was designed. And men and women are equal in terms of worth and dignity, but we're different in terms of form and function. And I, I just think going sort of with the current is going to help us a lot better than continuing to try to swim against it. You talk about three patriarchies, the bureaucratic, the corporate, and the trans patriarchies. Describe those three, and what do all three of them have in common? So in the course of making my argument, I, I said that feminists, particularly the second wave, who set out to you know smash the patriarchy, didn't actually destroy it. They just created deformed versions of it. And conservatives would easily sort of recognize bureaucratic patriarchy. So I talk about that as being created through the expansion of the welfare state, particularly during the war on poverty, and how bureaucratic patriarchy includes policies that provide aid and basic necessities for, for unmarried mothers. And, you know, most people are not against a safety net, but the way that bureaucratic patriarchy operates the incentive structure is completely off because what it does, it has created a symbiotic relationship between elected officials seeking votes, social service administrators sort of overseeing the poverty economy, and then single mothers who need financial support. So ultimately, the bureaucratic patriarchy encourages women to get and stay married to the government. Corporate patriarchy is a little different. It's more difficult for conservatives to recognize because there's, there's typically a deference to, to the free markets. And corporate patriarchy encourages the financial independence of, of women, including mothers. But what corporate patriarchy shows is that corporations do not care about our families. And the reason I say that is because CEOs of many of the largest companies would much rather pay for abortions for the female workforce than for maternal leave. And even I even quoted Treasury Secretary uh, Janet Yellen, who said during you know, a debate on abortion, said eliminating the right of women to make decisions about when and whether to have children would have very damaging effects on the economy and set women back decades. So she, like many of her peers on the left, see children as a burden and an impediment to economic activity for women. And in doing so, they distort sort of the beauty of family and, and of raising children. And then transpatriarchy, I think, is fairly straightforward to anyone who's paying attention. This is the rewriting of the rules of sex and gender, largely by 
men who, who believe that they are women. And I would argue that it's hard to form families among a people and in a culture where people are not sure which sex has the babies. So when you hear terms like pregnant people or people with the capacity for pregnancy or people who, who will say that men can get pregnant, those are all examples of trans patriarchy. And that confusion is going to have trickle down effects on family formation. What do all three of those have in common? They're all distortions. They are all distortions. They all ultimately lead other groups and and particularly other institutions that are male dominated. Those institutions ultimately grow in terms of their influence and, and their power within the society. And each of these deformed groups ultimately makes it harder for men to fulfill their roles, particularly as providers and protectors of their homes. So, again, they are all distortions, and none of them, as I said, eliminates patriarchy or destroys it. These are just alternative versions that are clearly deformed. Finally, with about 30 seconds, why do you say that some form of patriarchy is inevitable? I'll answer that by going back to something I said you know, a couple of minutes ago, which is that no society teaches its women that it is their responsibility to care for adult males and the children that they have together. And as long as that's the case, ultimately, some form of patriarchy in which men are responsible for the provision and protection of women and children is inevitable. It's possible that our society may say we don't want that and we may begin to teach women that. But in some of my research, I found evidence for something that I long suspected, which is men and women are not just interchangeable parts when it comes to family formation. So for, I'll give a concrete example. The phenomenon of male doctors marrying female nurses and physicians assistants is well known and no one questions it. But some of the data that I found shows that female doctors do not operate in the same way. So female doctors do not marry male nurses or PAs. They either marry men who are also physicians or men in a different field but of a similar socioeconomic stature. So this just shows that the, the behavior of men and women is different when it comes to the dating market. And that's why I talk about the inevitability of patriarchy in some form, because even the woman who's getting her degree in gender studies, if if she wants to be married, it's unlikely that she's going to seek a partner that is dependent on her for his protection and provision. And that's something that some people may not want to admit, but that doesn't mean it's not true. Delano Squires is a research fellow for the DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. He holds a Master's of Public Policy degree from George Washington University, and he's author of a recent column for The Federalist titled Pro-Family Conservatives Must First Be Pro-Men. You'll find a link to it and to the Heritage Foundation at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives. Delano, thank you. Thank you. We will be teaching a Sunday school lesson on Jesus the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10 and Psalm 23 with Pastor Tom Baker of Law and Gospel right after this.
Listen to the best of the church's music for the Epiphany season at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the Epiphany season, 24-7. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Elective abortion is not and never has been medical care. So wrote Dr. Donna Harrison, a wife, mother of five, and grandmother of ten, and also a pro-life advocate. And she wrote those words in the January issue of The Lutheran Witness, in which we take up the issue of the pro-life movement after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness, or visit our website, witness.lsms.org, to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Your comprehensive source for information teaching, and truth. You're listening to Issues Etc. If you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Dr. Russell Dawn, president of Concordia University, Chicago. Indeed, the quest for truth is at the core of a university's purpose. The liberal arts, illuminated by the revealed truths of Scripture, are powerful for equipping students for a life of self-governance. A disciple is one who follows the master. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? He said that it means to take up one's cross. The cross is thus the symbol of dying for others, of dying to self for the sake of serving others. And a life of service is a life well-lived. Truth. Freedom, vocation, Concordia University, Chicago, cuchicago.edu.